A good Easter Sunday morning to you, Ewan Chapel. Today is the seventh and last Sunday of Easter, the seven-week festival in the church calendar for celebrating the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. For the past three weeks, we've been exploring stories from the book of Acts that show us the way that Jesus' followers were used by God to change their world. We are resurrection people. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, we who have put our faith and trust in him are alive in him. We believe we begin to experience resurrection life now. And at some time in the future, we will be given a new resurrection body. These two realities are the joy and hope of all resurrection people. We began this series with a great doxology from Peter, found in his first epistle. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have been born into a new hope through the resurrection of Jesus, and as resurrection people, our goal is to be used by God to change our own part of the world as those first Christians were used by God to change their world. Our study began with Peter, one of the twelve disciples, and then we looked at Stephen, the first martyr in the church, and then Philip, the evangelist, who took the gospel to the Samaritans and then was used by the Holy Spirit in the conversion of an important government official in the Ethiopian government. Today we're wrapping up the short series by looking at the life of Paul. One might notice that there are two parts to the book of Acts. In the first twelve chapters, with the exception of chapter 9, Peter tends to be at the center of the action. And in the second part, chapters 13 through 28, the attention is primarily on Paul. The larger part of Acts is focused on Paul, his encounter with the risen Christ, his growth in faith, and his missionary journeys as he took the gospel to the Roman Empire. The book of Acts makes it clear that God used Paul to initiate dramatic change in the Greco-Roman world. That was his God-given job. He traveled thousands of kilometers preaching the gospel and planting churches in Asia Minor, what we now know as Turkey, Greece, and Italy. He proclaimed the gospel in Rome. He may have gone as far as Spain on a fourth missionary journey that's not recorded in the book of Acts. And he wrote more than half of our New Testament, explaining the connections between the promises of the Old Testament and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in terms that the people in the Roman Empire could understand. Paul had a key role and a crucial job in the first decades of the life of the young church. There are a couple of things about his background that made him the man for the job. First, he was a Roman citizen, which aided him in his travels. He was born in the city of Tarsus, located in the country that we know as Turkey, a provincial capital and an important city in the Roman Empire, the place where Anthony and Cleopatra met, and the place where Shakespeare's play about them was set. And because Tarsus was a Roman colony and a provincial capital, Paul was automatically a Roman citizen. He used it to avoid a flogging and to be delivered from a Jewish mob. He also used it to appeal to Caesar for a hearing. Second, Tarsus was an important intellectual center with its own academy and the amenities of a major urban center. It was an important commercial hub with political importance and influence. Paul understood the Gentile world and he understood urban life. 
Third, his parents sent him to Jerusalem to study under one of the great teachers of Judaism, Gamaliel the Elder, grandson of the great Rabbi Hillel. Paul had a deep understanding of Old Testament promises and expectations and was able to see them fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Before God called him and made him an apostle, he prepared Paul to take the gospel to the Gentile world. We first meet Paul in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, where he's referred to as Saul, not Paul. He had two names. Saul was his Hebrew name. Saul's family were Benjamites, descended from the, descended from the youngest son of Jacob, as was the first Jewish king, also named Saul. Paul was his Greek name. Now, it's interesting that in the book of Acts, the author uses his Jewish name until, on their first missionary journey, they visit the island of Cyprus and taking the gospel to the Gentile world. From that point on in Acts, he's always referred to as Paul. And that's the name we'll use for him as the, in the study this morning. Remember from Acts 7, the story of the stoning of Stephen, we saw Paul standing among the cloaks of those who threw the stones. In this painting, we see Paul in the lower right-hand corner with the coats. He's not throwing stones, but he appears to be exhorting and encouraging those who are. We pick up the story in Acts 7, verse 57. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Stephen's death seems to have been a catalyst for Paul, pushing him into action. He immediately began to arrest Jews who had become followers of Jesus. His, name, his aim was simple, to destroy the church. Let's pick up the story in chapter 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. In Acts chapter 26, Paul, speaking to Festus and King Agrippa, described his treatment of these first Jewish Christians. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul was furious. He was full of rage, but he didn't see himself as the bad guy. He saw himself as full of righteous indignation. He was on a crusade to defend the God of the patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No one carries on a campaign of persecution without believing he has sufficient reason. So let's ask ourselves, why was Paul so angry? There may be a hint in Galatians 5 where Paul mentioned the offense of the cross. For Paul, I think the crucifixion of Jesus was a stumbling block. In his thoughts, Jesus could not have been the Messiah, for it was written in Deuteronomy, anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. So it was obvious to Paul that Jesus was a false prophet, condemned by the Sanhedrin, the spiritual guardians of Israel, and executed by the Romans. To Paul, Jesus was dangerous. He felt it was his job to do all he could to crush Christian beliefs, and his anger led to action as we read in chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. However, something was about to happen that would change Paul's opinion about Jesus. Let's pause for just a minute and remind ourselves of our goal in this series. We, too, want to live like resurrection people, and we want God to use us to change our world. So, we're looking at Peter, Stephen, Paul, Philip, because God used them to change their world, and we want to learn from them. This, however, raises an important question. What does it look like to change our world? It looks now just like it did then in the first century, introducing friends, neighbors, co-workers, and even strangers to Jesus, to the risen Son of God, to be disciple-makers. That's the church's job. That's our job as individuals. Are you up for that? Okay, let's think about getting down to work. A first step in any job is to ask the question, what do I need for this job? What do I have to learn? What tools will I need? What supplies will I need? To find out what we need to do our job, we need to go back to that Damascus road. Paul began his trip to Damascus with a job to do, to arrest Jewish followers of Jesus. But as he traveled north toward the ancient city of Damascus to do his work, his world was turned upside down because Jesus, the risen Christ, unexpectedly interrupted his journey. The story of what happened on the road to Damascus is so important that it's described three times in the book of Acts. First in chapter 8 as part of the narrative, then in chapter 22 where Paul is speaking to an angry mob outside the temple in Jerusalem, and finally to Festus, the Roman governor, and Agrippa, the puppet king of Israel, in Acts 26. By the time he left Damascus, Paul had a new job. Meeting the risen Christ erased any concerns Paul might have had about the crucifixion. It was no longer an offense. One Bible teacher put it this way, Only the, the Damascus encounter with Christ was powerful enough to cause the young Jewish rabbi to reconsider the death of Jesus. Only his meeting with the risen Christ was sufficient to demonstrate that God had vindicated the claims and work of the one he was opposing. Paul met the risen Christ on that road. Follow the story in Acts 9. As he, neared as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. We call this story the conversion of Saul, and rightly so. Paul's life was changed. It was turned upside down by God. Now, I said in the introduction that Paul's citizenship and education made him well-suited for the job that God had for him to do. But this wasn't enough. If God was going to use Paul to change the world, then first, Paul needed to be changed. And that was God's plan for him. Paul needed a radical change in his life to do his new job. And this is true for each one of us. If God is going to use us to change our world, then we first must be changed. And the good news is this. God's Spirit is ready to do just that. We'll be talking more about the Holy Spirit and His work next week on Pentecost Sunday.
But Paul made his way into, into Damascus, as we read in verse 7. Uh, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So what did Paul do for three days, sitting in darkness? My guess is that he had a mighty wrestling match with his own thoughts, and I suspect he prayed a lot. God was beginning a renovation in Paul's life. Paul was going to be a new man with a new job. If God's going to use us, he must change us. Now raise your hand if you would like God to change your circumstances in some nice way. I can imagine hands all over Winnipeg going up. Uh, all of us would like to have change. Now, keep them up if you want God to radically change you. Where did you go? I don't see so many hands anymore. Okay, all I see is my iPhone. But in my imagination, I, I see a few hands. The idea of God changing us is a bit daunting. This is true for any sort of renovation. It always takes more work than a person thought it will take. And it always costs more, too. But having a good project manager helps in a renovation. In this case, God was the project manager supervising the renovation of Paul. We can trust God that any changes he makes in our lives, any renovations, will be entirely good. Good for God's kingdom, good for our world, and ultimately good for us. Now, as we continue the story, we see that God had a helper in this renovation, Ananias. Let's keep reading. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Who would blame Ananias if he was unwilling to help? He knew what this man Saul was doing, but he chose to trust and to obey, and he took a big risk, as we read. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Paul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Ananias spoke the two most beautiful words that any man could have said to Paul that day, as he dared to touch this one who had been his enemy, Brother Saul. He spoke to Paul not as his, not as his enemy, but as his brother. He accepted Paul as a man, now under the grace of God, now being changed by God, now part of God's family. 
I came across a line last week, I can't remember where, but the writer said that we can't all be like Paul, but we all can be like Ananias. We can be used by God to help each other, to become ready for the job that God has for each one of us to do. Ananias embodied hope for Paul, who probably still wasn't entirely certain what was going on. Resurrection people are agents of hope because of their own confidence in God. Remember that for a little bit later this morning. Resurrection people are agents of hope because of their own confidence in God. Now, Paul accepted the changes or renovations that God was making in his life, and he hit the ground running, as we read in verses 19 to 22. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call upon his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now before we leave the story, we need to consider one little word we passed over in God's instructions to Ananias. Hear what God said to Ananias. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God had a job for Paul, but it wouldn't be easy. He would have to change and he would have to suffer. And he did. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthian church in his second letter. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin? and I do not inwardly burn. We are resurrection people with a job to do, to introduce Jesus to the people in our world. To do this, we need to welcome God's renovation work in our lives. We need to welcome the power of the Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus. And so far that sounds okay. But the suffering part? No, I would rather not. We, we don't like suffering. But who does? Did Paul? He used his citizenship to avoid it when he could, but sometimes suffering is just part of the job. It was for Paul. You notice he pointed out the emotional suffering over the state of the church. That was hard for him. Suffering was certainly part of Jesus' life. Jesus prayed in the garden that he might not have to drink the cup of suffering that was before him, but at the same time he accepted it as part of the work that he had come to do, part of God's plan. I was listening to Tim Keller this past week, a wonderful pastor from New York City, and he was talking about the coronavirus. 
And in it, he referred to the conversation between Paul and Jesus on the road to Damascus. And, and it struck me as significant. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Paul responded. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When Paul was persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus. When Christians suffer, Jesus suffers. Christians are suffering in many parts of the world today, even losing their lives. And does Jesus not suffer with them in their pain, in their loss? Paul referred to this as participation in Christ's suffering. In his letter to the church in Philippi, he said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And then he said in the first chapter to that, of that letter that sharing suffering with Jesus is a privilege, writing, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. I was reading an entry on a Catholic website from Saskatoon this past week. And the author was talking about the difficulties caused by COVID-19 and the disruption of our lives. And I was so impressed with what he said that I, I thought I'd like to share with you a lengthy bit of his comment. He said, right, he wrote, well, here we are in the new normal of COVID-19. And we don't know how long it's going to be before things change. Or how they'll change. If, however, it seems our lives are beginning to unravel and spiral out of control, we would do well to remember that there is someone who can still be our rock. His name is Jesus Christ. We are blessed that we know this. But what about those who don't? Perhaps this could be a significant moment in history for us to help people come to desire him more than ever before. This, of course, will be influenced by the degree to which we radiate peace and joy amidst this time of great suffering and upheaval. If our lives are seen as attractive in ways not of this world, people might be more open to Jesus as a result of first becoming more open to us. Hopefully, authentic relationships may develop through which a person might choose to eventually take a leap of faith. And we want people to take that leap, for after doing so, what might seem like unbearable suffering can be seen in a new light. In my own life, I was moved by the attractive example of others, opened my heart to Christ more, began to taste his love in a new way, and began to trust him more than I ever had before. This made it easier for me to cooperate with God's grace, which brought about blessings beyond measure and much healing. This brought me to realize that God's plan for me was better than my plan, and that made me want to know God more intimately and to cooperate with him and his grace more profoundly. This man experienced the resurrection hope in other people, and it attracted, to him, attracted him to Christ, and he became a Christian. And he's now saying that 
those of us who are in this time of disruption, if we will display hope and confidence in Christ and the calm and peace that comes with that, we will become attractive to other people. And through us, they may become attracted to Christ. And hopefully, prayerfully, they will make that leap of faith to put their trust in the risen Christ and their hope in Him. We, too, today, can be agents of the resurrection hope. We, too, today, can change our world, bring in men and women to know Jesus. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we, we want to be like Peter. We want to be like Paul. We want to be like Stephen. We want to be like Philip. We want to bring people to know you. We want to live our lives in such a way as examples of people who have hope and confidence in you, that others will be attracted to you and will turn to you and will receive your grace and your life and be transformed by your power in their lives. Use us, please, Lord, we humbly ask. In your name we pray. Amen.